Let's read from the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 9, verse 7 to 20, page 278 in your Bibles. Saul said to his servant, If we go, what can we give the man? The food in our sacks is gone. We have no gift to take to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered him again, Look, he said, I have a quarter of a shekel of silver. I will give it to the man of God so that he will tell us what way to take. Formerly in Israel, if someone went to inquire of God, they would say, Come, let us go to the seer, because the prophet of today used to, call, to be called a seer. Good, Saul said to his servant, Come, let's go. So they set out for the town where the man of God was. As they were going up the hill to the town, they met some young woman coming out to draw water, and they asked him, Is the seer here? He is, they answered. He's ahead of you. Hurry now. He has just come to our town today, for the people have a sacrifice at the high place. As soon as you enter the town, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. The people will not begin eating until he comes, because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterwards, those who are invited will eat. Go up now, you should find him about this time. They went up to the town, and as they were entering it, there was Samuel coming toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, anoint him ruler over people Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. He have looked on my people, for their cry has reached me. When Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, This is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. Saul approached Samuel in the gateway and asked, Would you please tell me where the seer's house is? I am the seer, Samuel replied. Go up ahead of me to the high place, for today you are to eat with me, and in the morning I will send you on your way and will tell you all that is in your heart. As for the donkeys you lost three days ago, do not worry about them. They have been found. And to whom is all the desire of Israel turned, if not to you and your whole family line? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. copies of the scriptures now to our passage from the New Testament from today. And this is Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 5, verses 16 to 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 to 21 on page 1162 of your pew Bibles. And let's keep our copy of the scripture out, uh, if you don't mind, for the meditation as well. So let's hear now God's word together. I'm going to take the liberty of backing it up just a couple of verses and give you a little bit more context. So I'll read starting with verse 
11, but we'll focus in on 16 especially. Paul writes, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way. We do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might be, become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. There was once a man in a church where I pastored who ended up causing a lot of trouble for that church. Now he was a well-spoken, charming fellow. He seemed to express genuine interest in me, and I liked that, of course. And he drove a nice car. So what's not to like? But later, I realized that this person had had a long history of destructive relationships in church, in churches. And in fact, this fellow had been a former pastor as well. And then at one point, to my astonishment, my neighbor friend came across the road to me, and he was concerned for my well-being and for that of our little church, even though he wasn't a Christian believer himself. And he pulled me aside and he said, Andy, I've got to tell you something about this guy in your church. And he went on to tell me that he thought this other fellow had a very serious and dangerous personality disorder. And this type of person, my friend said, has only really two kinds of relationships. He has victims and he has accomplices. You are this kind of person's accomplice as long as you're willing to help them get exactly what they want. And if you don't, guess what? You become their victim. And so from the moment that my neighbor told me this, I had two thoughts. Thought number one, how do I keep this man in our church from destroying our congregation? But also thought number two, how do I keep from becoming a charming, well-spoken, surfacy, deceptive man 
who really has no true friends, but only, if we're honest, victims and accomplices. Lord, don't let me become this kind of person. Because it's very possible, isn't it? To slide into spiritual and relational disorder. To see people as only levers to pull in order to get what we want. To see people who don't love our agenda as threats keeping us from getting the things that we really want. Paul himself knew this firsthand. He was once, in a profound way, exactly this kind of person. He's not afraid to tell us about it. And he does so in this passage. And so I want us to listen carefully to Paul's counsel so that we can avoid becoming like this. And perhaps, by God's grace, we can even, even grow to see others through truly Christian eyes. After all, this is what it's all about, to become seers, as our title explains. So let's see if Paul can show us how to see and how not to see, how to be seers. So point one will be how not to see. Point two will be, well, how should we see? And then finally, point three will tell us how we ourselves have been seen. How to see, or how not to see, how to see, and how we're seen. So first, how should we not see? You know, uh, as I think is often the case in families, most of the charming things about my children, uh, they've learned from their mother. And the rest of the things, often not so charming, uh, they've picked up from me. Uh, But one unfortunate thing that they have gotten from their mother uh, is the gene of colorblindness. This is a curious fact about my children. Uh, My wife as a woman, carries this gene and as their mother passed it on to them. And so it's weird for me to think, as we're learning German names for green and blue and red, that they're not actually seeing quite the same thing as me. Sometimes their powers of distinction, especially among certain colors, of course they see the world in colors, not black and white like a 1950s television. They see colors, they just goof them up really bad, right? And mostly it's it's just funny. But there's a spiritual sort of colorblindness that we have had passed on from our first parents as well. And Paul had it. And you and I have had it. And many of us still have it. Paul says, verse 16, this is kind of the linchpin of our meditation. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though once we regarded Christ in this way. But we don't do that any longer. Paul isn't afraid to say that he was once profoundly worldly, even though he could hardly have been more religious at the very same time. And when Paul looked at Jesus Christ, Jesus, of course, who is the pinnacle of all religious desire, Jesus, who is the hope of nations, and Paul looks him square in the face, and his response is, meh. Not my thing. After all, like Isaiah, the seer foretold, Christ came. He wasn't astonishingly handsome. He certainly wasn't wealthy and he wasn't well-bred. The only things that drew people to this man, Jesus of Nazareth, were either spiritual thirst or religious anger and hatred. 
And now what the NIV here in our text calls a worldly perspective, verse 16, this is the word sarx, S-A-R-X, or flesh as it's often translated. Flesh in the Bible is our propensity to become merely smart animals rather than becoming lovers uh, after the God who is himself love. And apart from the love compulsion of Christ, we will only ever become sophisticated animals at the heart level. We'll judge and we'll live by appearances and we'll judge and we'll live for ourselves only. Paul once saw everyone and he saw Jesus himself through only animal eyes. He saw Jesus as a threat to his religion and people whose hearts were being captured by the love of Jesus and who were telling others of that love, he saw these people as threats as well. And many of them became his victims in the same way that Jesus had first become a victim. And so Paul knows enough to tell the church at Corinth, don't let your eyes be worldly. Don't let your heart be set on what you want and how to get it, and especially in the church. If you're going to be a seer, one who sees, if we as people and pastor are going to be seers, then we can't see through worldly, fleshly, selfishly ambitious eyes. It's unbecoming of us as Christians. When we look at others through such eyes, then our eyes become weapons of our own agendas, and we end up being either, they end up being either our accomplices or our victims. People are just in the way of what we really want. And how can we follow Christ and at the same time see those that he has loved in our midst with eyes that we didn't get from our Lord Jesus, but that we have inherited from the world and the flesh and the devil? We can't have those eyes and we must not. So how not to see then? We won't be spiritual seers if we have worldly fleshly eyes. So that's how not to see. Number two, how should we see? How do we become the seers that Paul wants us to become? Somehow now Paul went from, yes, as surely as I live, this Jesus deserved to die and so did his people, to, yes, I would gladly die for this Jesus and the life that I now live, I live by faith in him. An amazing transformation. And once his view of the Lord Jesus changed, then his view of everything and his every view of things, and especially his view of everyone, changed along with it. And as Paul says in verse 17, when we reckon with the people that we come across in our day-to-day lives, we are looking at people who have, in Christ, become a new creation. Or we are looking at people whose greatest need in the world is that they would become new creations in Christ. That's the only kinds of people we ever look at. New creations or people who radically need to be new creations. So to be a seer is to be on the lookout for new creation and especially in the lives of people. We can't be sure that it's new creation that we're seeing always. 
We don't see with perfect 2020 vision like Jesus does, but when we see what looks like new creation fruit in people's lives, we rejoice. And then we ask God, how can I help us all to see the ever newer creation emerge here in this person? If this person is a new creation, Lord, how can I help them be renewed even more? If they're not yet a new creation, how can I be a minister by God's grace of reconciliation so that they become new in him? As C.S. Lewis once wrote in his marvelous essay, The Weight of Glory, everyone's homework is to go read the essay, The Weight of Glory, this week. You'll be astonished. But he says it's incredibly important how we treat the people that we meet each day. Why? Because how we conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics, is radically important. Because, after all, there are, Lewis says, no ordinary people. You've never talked, he says, to a mere mortal. But it is immortals whom we joke with work with, marry, snub, and exploit. And as Lewis says, many of them will one day become everlasting splendors. And we don't treat them with the weight of glory that they carry. So to be a seer means that we who are new creations ourselves in Christ, we make it our habit and we make it our joy to lovingly call forth the new in people and to call for people to put behind the old so that it's dead and gone from their lives. To be ministers of reconciliation, verse 18, to be Christ's ambassadors, verse 20, is not just to see an invisible reality that other people can't see. It is that in a way. But it's also to have a wonderfully significant ministry, to have with Jesus a part in the emergence of new creation life in people all around us. We are co-laborers with God in Christ, as Paul says elsewhere. And it's marvelous. If we are seers, we go through life consistently asking the Lord to bring new creation more fully into fruition all around us. So that until the last day, when everything is fully and evidently saturated with new creation life, we can say, at last, Lord, you've answered the burden of our heart in our daily prayer. And you've brought about new creation in our midst. And this doesn't mean, of course, that the life of a seer, which we're trying to be, is detached from the real world, the world that everybody else sees and experiences. But rather it means that the goal for us as people and as pastors, as seers, is to live even our most mundane moments. The times when we're around the dinner table with family and friends, when we're on the train or on the tram, when we're in the car making our commute, when we're chatting outside after church, when we're in our office cubicle putting our hours in, when we're at the grocery, to live our normal lives with a recognition that the new creation has dawned in Christ and is looking to emerge and will emerge sooner or later right here and everywhere. And then we seers become also prayers and speakers. We pray and speak into the darkness, the light of the new creation. We love, we serve, we act with a new creation urgency 
Because we want nothing more, after all, for, than for Christ to become all in all. I have one friend that I think about in particular who is one of these seers that I aspire to be. One time, he and his Christian college buddies had become friends with a woman who was a fantastic cook and who wanted to open a restaurant. This woman wasn't a Christian believer at all, but, and you know, she wasn't actually a very kind person in a lot of ways. But these Christian friends were taken with her and with her vision. And so they helped her to open a cafe. They painted, they built countertops, they helped run the espresso machine, they spread the word. Some of them even grew the vegetables that she served. And then on the first day that the cafe was open, I sat at a table across from my seer friend. And he said this to me. He said, Andy, what is happening today is a signpost of the new creation. And I thought, I thought we were just having lunch. This is really bizarre. I must not be seeing the way that you're seeing. But of course, what my friend was saying was, this is just a restaurant opening. But when you're a Christian seer, it's a glorious occasion. Why? Because Christian believers had worked and prayed for and served this not yet new creation with such new creation zeal that having lunch at her cafe on opening day almost felt for them like going to church. It was so special. They recognized, like Paul in verse 18, that all of this is from God. So how not to see? We no longer see anyone from a worldly perspective. How to see? If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. And they see everything, and especially everyone, with new creation eyes. But lastly, we need to ask ourselves, how are we seen? The reality is that in order to become these kinds of seers, we need to see ourselves being seen by the seer of seers, by the Lord Jesus himself. In his letters to the Corinthians, Paul has been really passionate. He's laid out his heart on the page with ink. And many in the church thought that Paul was so obsessed with matters of the heart that he was, verse 13, completely out of his mind in his ministry with them. He says, though, remember, if we are out of our mind, or if we're in our mind, all of this is for you, that we might serve your hearts. And after all, verse 14, the love of Christ has compelled me to love and serve you in this way. And I take some cues from what Paul is saying myself. It will always be my job if I am a truly Pauline seer as your pastor to be a tad out of my mind for you all, to look at the heart of you all and not just at the surface, not to be impressed, therefore, with your wealth or your status or your appearance, but to have always on my heart the new creation potentiality in each of your lives. And then I'm supposed to love and serve you until there is new creation all over your life and all over your life's work. And it will always be your job if you are to be Pauline Christian seers of a truly Christian congregation 
to look past the superficial markers of worldly success and to see how you might be able to see new creation emerging in my life and in the lives of the people that you sit next to. But still, how do we get to this place where the love of Christ compels us? How do we have hearts, how do we have eyes that make us Pauline and make us seers? We have these jobs to love and serve one another and to see new creation in each other. But before we have any other job in the life of the church, it will always be all of our jobs as Christian seers to first have our eyes fixed where? Upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Upon the Lord Jesus. We need to lock eyes with the Savior And in his eyes, it is imperative that we see there what's really there. And that is the most generous, new creation-giving seer of them all. What do we see when we see this seer? Well, we see him who saw us the way that we really were and said, verse 21, I will be seen as sin for them so that they can be seen as righteous, so that they can be reconciled to God. That's how he saw us. What do we see when we see our seer, Jesus? We look in his eyes and we see him who sees us now as we are. And if we're in him, he says, what I see here is not a lost cause, not at all, but a new creation that I will make ever still new, just like I make all things new. What do we see when we look in the eyes of Jesus? We see him who will one day look back and see all of our attitudes, all of our words, and all of our actions. And astonishingly, he will say to us what? Well done, good and faithful servant. Why? Because he will have seen all of his own work in us. And he will have brought it to full flower and fruition. And he will be anxious at last to bring it to completion so that we can at last love and serve him and love and serve one another and love and serve the world completely in the new creation life of the world to come. And so we have our work as seers cut out for us. It's difficult. We've got to see with new creation eyes. We've got to love one another. We've got to tell others that Jesus is here to reconcile them to God If you'd like, as we're learning in our retreat in a couple of weeks, we've got to go up toward God. We've got to go in toward one another, and we've got to go out to the world. And all of this is in this passage. But before we get ahead of ourselves, let's remember, as Paul says here in verse 18, that all of this is from God. And it's God who first reconciled who to himself? Us not counting our sins against us. How do you go in and love often difficult people who are your sisters and brothers, even right here in the midst of your congregation? How do you go out and share good tidings of love with people who maybe have no love for your identity as an ambassador, verse 20, of the new creation? Well, the only way to pry the eyes of our hearts open so that we are new creation seers is to see that Jesus is seeing us 
with new creation eyes and with new creation love. And so here's the marvelous thing. If you are in Jesus Christ today, then he beholds you right now where you sit as a new creation in whom he takes the utmost delight and with whom he will work until you are complete. Isn't that a glorious thing? If you're in him today, you can know that he's always making you newer and newer because new is his thing. He sees and he beholds and he makes all things new. Even if you are in Christ, you. And if you aren't in Christ today, then verse 20, we implore you together as God's people, be reconciled to God. And you'll begin to see also with new creation eyes. You'll begin to see yourself as a marvelous new creation of our Lord Jesus, because that's, in fact, what you will be. So let's be together, shall we? From here out, seers with new creation eyes. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for opening our eyes to behold the glory that is in Jesus. We confess that we don't always see him as we should, and therefore we don't see others the way we ought to. Open the eyes of our hearts that we might know him more and then turn our eyes towards others and love them deeply and fully as he's first loved us and as first he saw us. Do all of this among your people and among your pastors and in your kingdom until all things are made new and until you yourself are all in all. And we make our prayer together in your name, Jesus. Amen.